Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, note that phrase in verse 1. When had the Lord said this? When did the Lord say that to Abraham? 25 years before the story that we're going to read about as we continue on through chapter 12, 25 years previously when Abram, who will also be known later on as Abraham, when Abram was living in the city of Ur. Ur was up in the Chaldees. He was approximately 50 years of age at that time, and he had done pretty well for himself. He, he really had quite uh, a lot of good stuff seemingly happening in his life, for you see, he was a man who would have some riches. He was a rich man. Uh, by virtue of the fact that he lived in the city of Ur. Ur was sort of the Newport Beach of that day. I mean, Ur was the hot spot. In fact, as I've alluded to previously, Ur was the spot where they first invented bathtubs. It was hot tub city, if you would. It was Marin County. It was Newport Beach. It was a swanky spot. And Abraham lived there, and by virtue of the fact of living there, it would indicate that he would be a man of some wealth. So he had riches. He also had respect. You see, he was a leader, and he had a very beautiful wife. And we'll get into her story a little bit later. So he was rich, he had respect, and he was religious. Joshua chapter 24, as Joshua is rehearsing the story of Israel and Israel's history. Joshua talks about how the fact that Abraham and his family served other gods, false gods. They were idolaters. Probably Abram was a man who worshipped the moon god there in the Ur of Chaldees. He was the original Mooney, if you would. So here's a guy, Abraham, Abram. He is rich. He is respected, he is religious, but he is lost. He is headed for hell. He doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. He has not yet had an understanding of the Lord, and he is in a lost, despicable, damned condition spiritually. And that is when the Lord sovereignly, in His mercy and grace, all oh, the goodness of our God, God reaches down sovereignly to this man, Abram, who is living in Hot Tub City in Ur, and He makes Himself known to Abram, and He speaks to him what we have just read in these first three verses. He says, Abraham, leave your country, leave your family. I'm going to do something radical with you and through you. Follow me. And Abram had a choice to make right then, whether he would 
follow in faith or whether he would cling to his riches and religiosity and respectability and his comfortable life there in Ur of Chaldees. Abram, he chose to respond. He chose to believe. He becomes the father of faith. Now it's interesting to me that God reaches out to Abram for Abram's personal salvation. God looks on him, shows grace to him, and makes himself known to Abram sovereignly, just like God did to you and just like God did for me. God reached out to us. The Bible says, there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. Don't think that you're sitting here tonight because you were really seeking God. That's not really true. God was drawing you. Because the Bible says there's none that seeks after God. There's none that doeth righteousness. No, not one. God sovereignly elected you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. And we have been so graced and we are so fortunate to be part of this group called the elect. He just elected you as he elected Abram, sovereignly reached out to him, spoke to him, and called him, extending to him salvation personally. But that's not the whole of it. You see, not only was God extending salvation to Abram personally, but he was going to make from Abram a new nation, miraculously. God was going to do a whole new thing. He was going to start a whole new nation. We left off in chapter 11, seeing the world in a state of confusion. Remember how the world came together there on the plains of Shinar to build this massive tower, the Tower of Babel. And how they were seeking in that way to become independent of God. It was really a rebellion against God. We can do whatever we set our minds to, they said arrogantly, defiantly, led by a man named Nimrod, whose name means rebel. And they built this tower, and God said in His kindness, in His mercy, God said, I can't let this happen. Because there'll be no stopping them now that they have set their mind to do these things apart from me, and now that they are unified linguistically, and God says, I must scatter them, because God knew that the heart of man was evil, and that ultimately man would do evil things with his ability, with his technology. And God in His mercy said, therefore, I'm going to scatter people by dividing their languages. In the last days, we are seeing a reunification of humanity. And we are seeing all kinds of interesting re repercussions, aren't we? Even with this Dr. Seed that's in the news today. The guy that now is ready to start cloning human beings. And he has evidently quite a few people that are lining up to be cloned. Interesting, because mankind, you see is now unified once more linguistically. What do you mean? The language is mathematics, computer, technology. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we can be sure that we are living in the last days. Because man has come together in another tower of Babel, technologically, through computer technology, one language, the language of math. And now man is seeking to do what man has no right to. And there's no stopping man, and thus I believe personally. It's only another indicator that we must be living in the very last days.
Well, be that as it may, God in His mercy said, I must scatter the people. So He scattered them. They were confused. But God was not through in making His ways and Himself known to humanity. And He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call this man Abram, later on known as Abraham. And from him there's going to come a great nation. A nation. A nation, God says, I'm going to establish through you, Abram, miraculously. For what reason? Three reasons, and for you that are Old Testament Bible students, for you that are interested in Old Testament theology, you need to get this down. Because you will hear arguments when you talk with folks concerning why is the Old Testament this way? Why did God just use the Jew? Why were the Jewish people chosen to be His people, the apple of His eye, you see? And people are real fuzzy on this. But there are three reasons the Bible is clear about why God chose to say to Abram that day, I'm going to make of you a nation. For three reasons. First of all, number one, to be a witness of God's ways. To be a witness of God's ways. Listen to what God declares through the prophet Isaiah. I'll read it to you. You can jot it down if you wish to. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 23, God says through the prophet, Sing, ye heavens, for I the Lord have done it. Break forth into song, ye mountains, and every tree that is therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified Himself through Israel. God says, even though the world is in confusion, they're all scattered, they're all speaking different languages, it's a bunch of babble, God says, I still want people to know who I am. I'm going to show Myself in and through this nation. I'm going to glorify Myself in Israel. In fact, He would go on to say a few chapters later, in chapter 49 of Isaiah, very key passage, very important scripture. In verse 6, Isaiah 49.6, God says, I will also give thee, Israel, for a light unto the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. In other words, I'm going to glorify myself in you, that you might be an example to all other peoples, that other nations can see practically what it means to walk with me, God declares. You are going to be a witness. You are going to be a light unto the Gentiles. This was a key component, an important reason for God establishing the nation Israel through Abram, the Jewish people, that they were to be a light for the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are anyone who is not a Jew, you see. And God says, I care about them, and I want you to be a light for me. I'm going to choose this one nation to be a light for all other peoples so they can see practically what it means to believe in me and to walk with me. Now, the Jewish people lost this understanding as the years went on, or many of them did. And they began to think, hey, God doesn't care about the Gentiles. And they began to actually teach that the Gentiles existed basically for one reason, and that was to keep hell hot. <laughs> they were fuel. They were fodder for the fires of hell. 
That's the only reason the Gentiles existed. And so they would stay as far away as they could from anyone who was a Gentile. And if you accidentally rubbed against a Gentile, you would have to go home and take off the clothing that you were wearing and burn it, lest you become contaminated because you rubbed shoulders with a Gentile. And then you'd have to go through various ceremonial cleansing baths to get rid of the defilement. They turned totally inward. They were supposed to be a light unto the nations. God says, I'm going to glorify myself in you and through you that I might be then seen by the nations around you. They were to be a light. That was the original purpose. Secondly, they were not only to be a witness of God's ways, but they were to be a keeper of God's word. A keeper of God's word. Number two, this is the second reason why God chose to make a new nation. First, a witness of God's ways. Second, they were to be a keeper of God's Word. We know that from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 2. In Romans, chapter 3, verse 2, God declares directly that the advantage of being a Jew is that they were given or was committed to them the oracles of God, the Word of God. And the Jewish people took very seriously that responsibility to their credit and to our benefit. They were keepers of the Word. The Word of God came to them and through them, and they were protectors, fierce protectors of the Scriptures. And for that, we can be grateful to this day. So, first, they were to be a witness of God's ways. They were to be the keepers of God's Word, and they were to be a channel for God's wonder to be a channel for God's wonder. And the wonder I'm referring to specifically is the wonder of Messiah, the wonder of Jesus, the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. Through the Jewish people would come Messiah, you see. It was all part of the plan. And that is why God says to Abraham, and through you shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. Because from you, Abram, is going to come Messiah, a Savior, Jesus, you see, our Redeemer. Now, interesting, God spoke this to Abram, and God declared, I'm going to do something radical. Watch this. Think with me momentarily. This is really intriguing to me personally. God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to make you a nation. And I'm going to protect you. All those that bless you will be blessed, but those who curse you or come against you will be cursed. In other words, you're going to have primacy. You're going to have identity. You're going to have security. Primacy, something wonderful is going to happen. I'm going to make you a great nation. Primacy or purpose. I'm going to make your name great. Identity. You're going to know who you are and what you're about. Primacy, identity, and security. I'm going to protect you. I will bless them that help you, and I will curse those that come against you. The reason I find this intriguing is because this is what God sovereignly, graciously, in His mercy said, Abram, this is what I'm going to give you. Just follow me. Leave your family. Leave your country. And these things will come your way. Now, think with me. 
because those were the three things that man wanted desperately in the chapter previously in chapter 11. Look at in chapter 11. Look back at verse 4 of chapter 11. And they said in verse 4, chapter 11, they're on the plain of Shinar in this whole Babel building deal. They said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Primacy. Let's build a city like no other city. A tower whose top goes to the heavens or from which we might study the heavens, you see. We're going to do something that's never been done before on a grander scale than has ever been attempted previously. Primacy. Let us do this. We'll build a city. And they also said, verse 4, let us make a name, identity. We're going to have a name. We'll be known for this. This will be our identity. Primacy, identity, and the reason, verse 4, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth, security. We'll keep secure in our unity. We'll do this beautiful, big, glorious project. We'll make a name for ourselves and we'll be secure. We'll keep from being scattered. The point of it is this. They said, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. And man, it didn't happen. In their own energy, they wanted primacy, they wanted identity, they want security. Chapter 12, God says to a guy there in Ur, follow me and you're going to have primacy. Follow me and you're going to have identity, a great name. Follow me and you're going to have security. I'm going to protect you and be with you, you see. That speaks to my heart. Because many times I think we are vulnerable to babble it. What do you mean? Well, I, I want something meaningful to do in my life, primacy. Or I want to discover who I am, identity. Or I need security in relationships or vocationally or financially. And we attempt to do it like they did in Babel. Let us, let us, let us. You know what the Bible says? It's not going to work. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You're going to spin your wheels. You're going to waste your days. Every person in here, in one way or another, is looking for primacy, identity, and security. Every person, in one way or another, is desiring and craving those things. Now, you can try and build it yourself. I'm going to build my business. Or I'm going to make a name. Or I'm going to hang on and demand security from him. Whatever it might be, it's going to fail. You see, Jesus said this, if you seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added to you. If you seek those other things first and foremost, if that's what has priority, if that's what's drawing me, it's going to end up in a babbling, blundering mess. Chapter 11. But if I say, Lord, I'm just going to follow you today. You're my passion. I'm going to just follow you today. You're the reason for my being. I'm just going to follow you today. I find that he puts before me things of primacy. I find that I understand who I am in personal identity. And I find that I have real, true security when I seek first the kingdom. Now, gang, every one of us this evening is either in chapter 11, the Babel mentality, or chapter 12, 
the blessing of simply obeying and seeking first the kingdom. A couple of days ago, I was feeling like, man, I've got to accomplish these tasks. There was some pressing problems. There was some real decisions. And I was wrestling with these things. I've got to figure this out. I've got to deal with that stuff. Let us, let us, let us. And I found myself in chapter 11. And I was babbling. I was confused internally. I was babbling to others around me. I was just a chapter 11 babbler, you see. And then a couple of mornings ago, I realized what I really need is not to let us, let us, let us build a tower, make a name, keep ourselves from being scattered. I realized I just need to seek the Lord. Not about those things, but just seek the Lord. Just be with Jesus. Funny thing happened. As I did that early in the morning, I found myself just totally enjoying the Lord. And those other things didn't matter. And even in the next day and a half or so, without my even trying, those things began to fall into place in ways that I couldn't have predicted or imagined or figured out when I was just enjoying being in the presence of Jesus. You remember what he said, that great big lovable fisherman, Peter? Remember after Jesus had died on the cross and risen from the dead, but Peter was feeling really bummed out about his own failings, his denying Christ? He said, I'm going to go fishing. wasn't supposed to do that. But after all, that was security for him. That was his vocation professionally. That was his name, Peter the fisherman. That was his identity. That was what he was, a fisher guy. And so he said, ah... I'm just going to go back to, to, to doing it myself. And so he goes out on the Sea of Galilee, and you know the story. He and others who went with him, they fished all night, and they caught what? Nothing. nothing. They fished all night, and nothing was happening. They were in confusion, if you would. They were babbling, if you would. They were fishing. They were toiling, but nothing was happening. And in the morning, they hear a cry from a stranger they didn't recognize on the shore saying, Children, have you caught any meat? Have you got any fish? And they said, nope. And the stranger on the shore said, well, cast your net on the other side. And so <laughs> they did it, and they took in a haul. And John, who was in the boat, said, that, that, that must be the Lord. That's got to be the Lord. And Peter said, oh, and he dove in, and he swam as fast as he could to the shore, and he got there. You know the story. He got there. And as he came to the shore, he saw Jesus standing there with a warm, blazing fire. And guess what was on the fire? Broiling or baking or roasting or whatever they do with those fish in that day. Yeah, it was a fish. There was fish on the fire. The very thing that Peter was out trying to find in his own let us mentality. Jesus had all the time and it was already cleaned and cooking. Jesus had it all the time. And precious people, listen carefully. Whatever you're saying, man, I gotta do this or we gotta solve that or mm, whatever it is that is churning in your own spirit this evening. You're going to find that Jesus has the answer and will satisfy the craving if you'll just, if I'll just, if we'll just draw close to Him. Abram, if you just follow me, all the things that those guys were trying to do and couldn't do, man, 
it's going to be given to you. Seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will happen. Listen, this was a fabulous call given to Abram. Do this, and you're going to have primacy, purpose. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have identity. I'm going to make you a great name. You're going to have security. I'm going to stand up for you. By the way, you CNN viewers, you prophecy buffs, understand this. The Lord here in verse 3 says very specifically, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. Hmm. Right before Bible study last night, I was watching the news before I came out and was able to catch a good chunk of the interview of the president of Iran, President uh, Mohammed Khatani. And he was being interviewed by Christiane Amapour, or whatever her name is, there uh, in Iran. And for the first time in 21 years, an Iranian leader was speaking to Americans. We still have in our consciousness, in our memories, it's still burned into our collective memory what took place in 1979-1980 when our Americans there in the embassy compound were held hostage for what? 444 days, thank you. Held hostage for a great length of time. And how we were branded as the great Satan. And you might remember those days when, man, it was heavy. The Iranians, Iran, was mocking us and keeping our fellow citizens as hostages. And the tension between Iran and America has remained until yesterday when the president of Iran addressed the American people saying that he wants a friendship with America. He wants his country to be more like America. And it blows the minds of geopolitical observers, current event watchers. What's the deal? Iran? Let me tell you something. Keep your eyes open, your antenna up, your mind's working. Why is there a change in Iran? I told the folks last night, it's been confirmed today, there's more to it than meets the eye. You see, Iran realizes that right now, as the Clinton administration is coming to the end of its second term, the Clinton administration has been very, very cold towards Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party because they are seeking to, what the Clinton administration says, stall the peace process by continuing to build on the West Bank, and there's all kinds of turmoil in Israel right now politically. You see, it was only a few days ago before this breakthrough in American-Iranian relationships that David Levy, the foreign minister in Israel, resigned. Perhaps you were following the story. He resigns. He resigns from the cabinet. He says, I'm not going to be foreign minister anymore. And he takes with him the five members of his party. There's 23, 24 parties political parties, if you would, in the Knesset, and they gain power by forming coalitions. When David Levy walked out with his five members, that meant Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu. That meant that he now, his coalition, is now 61 in number out of 120 in totality. 
That means he has a one-vote majority. He is in very, very dangerous waters politically right now. There's blood in the water, and the sharks are circling. It looks as though that there is going to be perhaps a uh, demand for new elections, that the uh, Likud party may be out of office. Who knows? We'll wait and see. And by the way, don't bet against Benjamin Netanyahu. He is the comeback kid, truly. He's been here before. Watch him carefully. He's an interesting character. But here's the deal. All of a sudden, there's problems in Israel. The administration presently is not supporting this Likud party as they supported previously Yitzhak Rabin. Remember, he was the guy that was assassinated a few years back. Clinton and the administration around him supported Yitzhak Rabin with great, great fervor because Rabin and Shimon Peres were proponents of the peace process, the giving back of the West Bank, the turning over land to the Palestinian people. And our State Department is in favor of that. Give back the land. It's insane to give. Do you realize if Israel gives back the West Bank, that that would make the nation nine miles wide? She will be totally vulnerable militarily to any kind of invasion through Jordan to follow that simple military axiom, divide and conquer. She will be nine miles wide at a certain point, very vulnerable. So Israel is in turmoil. And all of a sudden, Iran, realizing the moment is right, the Clinton administration's second term is about up, they are already pulled towards Netanyahu and the Likud party. Iran says, this is our moment. We will now reach out to the Americans. As these Persian Gulf nations, Iran, and later on, I believe we'll see Syria follow suit, reaches out to our country, listen, it comes with a price. Never forget that. It comes with a price. What is the price? The price is put pressure on Israel to give back the land. Put pressure on Israel. We want to be your friends, America. You're no longer the great Satan. We like you. We want to be like you. Now, can we be buddies? And as we are sucked into this trap, there will be pressure on an already weakened Israeli government to put pressure on them to an even greater degree to speed up the peace. The peace process. Four years ago, they shook hands on the White House lawn since that, there's been 259 Israeli citizens killed in terrorist acts. There's been 1,020 seriously wounded. That would be equal to 13,000 Americans killed in a comparable demographic proportion. 13,000 Americans killed and 75,000 approximately Americans seriously wounded. Now, what if we had a group that killed? We got all involved in the Timothy McVeigh event. And rightly so. But can you imagine if 13,000 Americans were butchered by a foreign entity? Can you imagine what our reaction would be uh, if we had 75,000 people seriously wounded? 
And yet we are expecting Israel to say, well, let's get back with the peace. The peace process has brought nothing but pain, problems, and bloodshed to that nation. And Bibi Netanyahu understands that. The Israeli people voted overwhelmingly in their first option to vote directly for a prime minister. Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, won overwhelmingly. And he ran on one basic platform, and that was the rejection of the Oslo Accord, which was the peace treaty they shook hands on four years ago. You say, well, John, that's not true. They didn't win overwhelmingly. It was a close election. Netanyahu just barely snuck in. Yes and no. Yes, it's true if you count all the voting that took place in Israel. But you see, Arabs vote in Israel. And the Arabs voted against Benjamin Netanyahu 90%. 90% of the Arab citizens of Israel, a huge chunk of their population, voted absolutely against Netanyahu. So if you take away the Arab vote and just count the Israeli Jewish vote, you have an overwhelming support for Netanyahu. Now all that's to say this. You're going, well, John, I didn't come here tonight for a whatever this is. What are you talking about? This is what I want to say. If I've lost you, now listen carefully. If you're confused, tune back in. If you're sleeping, wake up. Listen. All that's to say this. Our text tells us something of God's heart concerning those people and that nation. If we get sucked in as a country to turning our back on Israel or distancing from Israel or beginning to cozy up to the enemies of Israel, we do so at a great cost. God says, I will curse those that come against you. And I'll bless them that stand by you. I am totally convinced as a student of history that you can chart how a nation will do in direct proportion to how they treat the Jew. You look at England. England in the 1930s, the sun never set on the English Empire. But then in the 19, late 20s and 30s, England began to turn her back on the Jew. At one time, right before that, she was a defender of the Jewish people, the Balfour Declaration, and all the rest that allowed the Jew to begin to move back to her land. They were supporters of the Jew. They were champions for the Jew. But then they began to make political agreements with the Arab nations based upon their fears about upcoming war that was looming. And they turned their back on the Jew. And if you saw the movie Exodus years ago, or if you perhaps read the book, you know the tragedy of what happened when England would not even allow the Jewish people to go into the ports of Israel, and thus they were destined to die in the concentration camps and gas chambers of Nazi Germany. It's a sad, sad story. And England fell at that point. England began to crumble, and now where is the great British Empire? It is non-existence. That's just one example that any one of us who is at all a student of present history can say, wow, what happened to England? 
And you can go right down the line. I challenge you students to do that. And you can see that those nations that turn their back on the Jewish people are cursed. And those nations that choose to stand with the Jewish people and for the Jewish people are blessed. And I say to you, not because I want to give a political lecture tonight, but because I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher. I say to you, no matter if you're Republican or Democrat or Peroista or whatever you might be, independent, whether you're conservative or liberal, that doesn't matter to me. The fact of the matter is this, though, as we head into another political season, there is an issue that is huge. It's God's issue. And the issue concerns Israel. And if this country does indeed turn away, we will do so at a great cost. And I believe that we will see a precipitous and obvious decline in this nation the day that we turn away from the Jew. We stood by her in 48 when she became a nation. We cast, if you would, the deciding vote. She received statehood, Israel did, May 14, 1948, by one vote. And America cast the deciding vote. And we've stood by Israel since 48, but now, ominously, there's currents at work. And this Iranian thing of yesterday is a grand scheme to pull America's interests away from this troubled little nation that's divided and hurting and struggling, and to begin to say, let's be practical. Let's side now. Let's begin to develop relations with the Arab nations. We will do so at our own expense and demise and danger. This is a principle. Listen, people. This is a principle. God has a special place for the nation Israel, and for the Jewish people. He calls them the apple of his eye. And wise is the person, and wise is the nation, who realizes God's economy, and God's word specifically, that he says, I'll bless those that bless you, Abram, and I'll curse them that curse you. A very important scripture. Well, I didn't mean to get off on all of that. But be that as it may. So Abraham departed, verse 4. (laughs) now we're on the road he departs as the Lord had spoken unto him Lot went with him Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran hey hey you say I thought John you said he was 50 he was 50 when he received the initial call or approximately 50 when he received the initial call And God said to him, what? Leave your family. Leave your uh, relatives. Leave your country and come out to a new land. Well, he left, but guess what? He took family with him. He took his dad, a name that is significant. His dad's name is, as mentioned here in chapter 11, Terah. And Terah means literally delayed because they traveled from Ur of the Chaldees and they went. But then they came to Haran, which is the border town. It's the final town before you cross out of or before you leave Babylon or Chaldees. It would be like if God told us, Applegate, I want to do something great. And I want you to move to Mexico City. And so we say, okay, let's go. And we go to San Diego, to the border town. And we stop there. Well, that's what they did. They stopped. Because, you see, in chapter 11, we saw that the father, Terah, whose name means delay, 
began to take control. Look at what chapter 11 says, verse 31. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, uh, which is his grandson, or Abram's nephew, and other family, and they went to Haran and dwelt there, verse 31 ends. How long were they there? They were there until Terah died. Approximately 25 years, folks. 25 years they were stuck. Now those were 25 wasted years. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen tells the story, he says there in verse 2 and 3 and 4 that they were there stuck until Terah died. He wasn't supposed to take Terah in the first place. He was supposed to leave his family. So he goes, but he's not going in total obedience. He's faltering. You know what, though? That doesn't blow God away. God doesn't give up on Abram. He just waits. Abram's waiting for his dad to die. They're stuck there. Dad says, this is as far as we're going. The whole ministry is stopped. The program is shut down for 25 years. But when he dies... Now he's going again, verse 4. There's a 25-year gap, and now he's on his way. Let me say this practically to you tonight. There are people who often will come to you, who often come to me, and they say, man, I just don't know what God is doing. He isn't directing me. I don't know where I'm supposed to be living or what I'm supposed to be doing. I've been waiting on the Lord, and He's just not directing me. Ever hear that? Maybe you've felt that from time to time. You know what? There's an interesting verse. I'll read it to you. Jot it down in Isaiah chapter 30. This is a great scripture, verse 18. It says, Therefore, verse 18, will the Lord wait that He may be gracious to you, and therefore will He be exalted that He might have mercy upon you. Therefore, the Lord will wait. Isaiah 30, 18. The Lord waits. Waits for what? Waits for me, waits for Abram, waits for you, perhaps, to be obedient to what the Lord had already directed you to do. Oh, I'm waiting on God. Well, God says, as a matter of fact, I'm waiting on you. Lord, why aren't you directing me? I already did. 25 years ago, I told you what to do. And I'm not going to just give you more stuff in your inbox to load you up or to weigh you down. I'm waiting until you do what I ask you to do. And that's why so many people are confused about God's will. So many people say, I just don't get direction from the Lord, and they blame God wrongly. They're like Abram. They're delayed because they haven't been obedient to what God told them to do. God speaks to a man, speaks to a woman, speaks to me, speaks to you, and says, here's the thing. And when you do that, then you'll get step two. But you're not going to get step two until you do step one. And that's a wonderful act of love from our Father. He doesn't pile on us stuff. He doesn't stack our inbox up. He just says, one thing I'm going to give you to do at a time, Johnny. And as you do that one thing, then I'll give you the next thing. I wonder if you might know people, or perhaps one or two of you might be in this place tonight, where you've just been spinning your wheels and wasting time and wondering, well, where is God and why doesn't God? Maybe, maybe it's because God is waiting on you.
Maybe it's because there's something which He told you very directly to do. It might concern a ministry like intercessory prayer. It might concern a study program that He spoke to your heart about. It might concern witnessing to a specific person on the job site or whatever it might be. And He told you what to do. And you haven't done it. That's why I encourage people to keep journals. To write down the things that God puts on your heart. Because you see, so often we think, well, Lord, what's going on? And in reality, if we would just look back and see what He told us previously, we could see what the problem is. So God just waits. Therefore, the Lord will wait. He wasn't mad at Abram. He wasn't coming down on Abram. He wasn't upset with Abram. He was just waiting. Day after week, month after year, decade after decade, 25 years go by. And now Terah dies. And Abraham gets going again. Now, Abram, as you know, is just learning about faith. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. God understands that. God just waited until Abram realized that, hey, he's got to get going again. It's like this. You parents understand this. It's when your your son, your firstborn son or daughter, you know, you, you take them and, and, and they're in their pampers or what have you. And, and they're learning how to walk. And they take a step or two and they fall down. You don't yell at them for falling down. You don't say, what a jerk. What a dope. I've had it with you. I gave you a chance to walk and you fell. You're out of here. Up for adoption you go. You, you don't do that. Man, when Peter John took his first couple of steps and then fell on his rear end, I was going, yeah, Peter, excellent. I was celebrating the few steps, the one or two steps that he took. I wasn't mad at him for stumbling or faltering. God's the same way. He looks at Abram, Abram's faltering, and we're going to see him falter over and over again in this first part of his life. God's not mad at him. God's not mad at you. God simply realizes that this is how we learn to walk. We walk by faith. Abraham's the father of faith, and he falters a bit, and here he's in a 25-year slump. Take hope. God hasn't given up on him. God gives us the second chance, the third opportunity, the fourth. On and on, His mercy is new every morning. His grace is limitless, you see. (laughs) Peter John being the first opportunity to speak to the people in the amphitheater. I thought, this is it. Tammy and I talked it over, and we prayed about it. Who should dedicate our brand new baby boy, Benjamin? This was ten years ago. And we talked about various people and prayed about some stuff and thought through. And finally, we decided, here's what we'll do. We'll have Peter John, who at that time was about ten or eleven. He'll pray, and he'll dedicate... Benjamin. So that was Peter's first time there to speak to and to be involved in the big Sunday congregational worship service in that kind of way. So he was up there on the stage with me and I took Benjamin and handed him, Benjamin, to Peter John. Held the microphone for PJ and he prayed, Lord, bless Benny and and I thought he was going to say something really rich. Really, you know, it was my boy. 
It's my son. My oldest son is dedicating my youngest son. This is a marvelous moment. This is a historic event. This, this is going to be great. What's he going to say? Lord, just bless him. Make him a lawyer. And I listened. Make him a lawyer? Make him a lawyer? And this was right at that time when all the lawyer jokes were going around. It was the big thing, you see. And, and make him a... Here I thought he was going to pray that he might be an apostle, you know, or a prophet or whatever. Make him a lawyer. Amen, Lord. I, tell, I thought, what in the world? And I grabbed that microphone and tried to say, P.S. Lord. <laughs> Just kidding, Lord. Whatever. I was really taken... I thought, oh, Peter. Peter, John, Peter. Here's your big moment. A historic time for our family. And you you dropped the ball, buddy. Oh, I was a bit taken back by that. Now, did I say... That's it. Peter, John, you had your chance. Never again. Man, you didn't come through in the way that I thought you should, and so consequently, sorry, buddy, that's it. You blew it. Finito. You're done. Uh-uh. It's not the way parents work, and I tell you, I was so blessed listening to Sunday's tape when he taught here at the fellowship. You know, Peter John, who's now 21 teaches in a way that absolutely astounds me. He, he gave a lesson on Sunday about Balaam and connected the three beatings of the donkey to the three New Testament references to Balaam, the error of Balaam, the way of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. And he talked about stuff that I had never heard or read or thought about. And this is the way it always... I listen, Of all the guys that I listened to or could be listening to, Peter John ministers to me uh, more than anybody else. I just love the insights that he has. When I was 21, I didn't even know who Balaam was, much less make the connections that he made. That's the truth. Uh, My goodness, I went to Bible college and they didn't teach you stuff like that there. They taught you about uh, church budgets and bus programs and dancing bears and clowns. They didn't teach the Bible. But I'm listening to my son. That's the way it was. Sorry. Uh, I'm listening to my son, and I go, wow. Once more, I'm being taught and fed and challenged in my own faith and walk. It's such a blessing. Now, that's what parents do. That's what you do with your kids. And Jesus said, if you being evil know how to do good things for your kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father who's not evil, give good gifts, good opportunities to his. Even though you fail, even though I falter, and we do, don't we? God still says, okay. He picks us up and he dusts us off and he says, let's get going again. Now that you're ready, it's been 25 years, welcome back, John. Now let's get going again, you see. The key is, listen, the key is when you fall down, pick something up, learn a lesson, and then keep on going. Abraham, you see, here he is. He's on the way again, and he's moving, and he's on his way now 
where he should have been going 25 years previously, he's on his way to the promised land. So he goes now. He's on his way, and here he is. He passes through, verse 6, the land under the place of Sychem. For you Bible students, that's Sychar in the New Testament, the John 4 story, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. That's this spot, you see. He passes through that place under the plain of Moray, and the Canaanite was then in the land. The Canaanite, those people that were cursed and condemned, those people that were carnal, beyond belief, sinful and iniquitous, God says, I'm going to give you that land, Abraham. I'm going to give you that land. So the Canaanites were to be exterminated because they were a very wicked, perverted, sinful people. And they were to be wiped out, put out of their misery, and to keep the contamination from spreading any further, you see. It's an act of mercy and love. Be that as it may, at this point, the Canaanite was in the land, and Abraham uh, heard from the Lord, verse 7, the Lord appeared to him and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. Mark that, because when you hear discussions, as you do, about whose land is it, that is, the West Bank, the Gaza, the Golden Heights, Israel, and beyond, actually, arguing over whose land is it, God says, it's my land, and I am giving the land to you, Abram. I'm giving the land to you and to your seed. What seed? Later on, he says, I'm giving the land to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the Jewish nation. Folks, the whole geopolitical problem is so simple if you read your Bible. God says, I am giving that land to the Jew. That's whose land it is, very simply. And I tell you, that's the way it's going to be, ultimately. So Abram, what does he do? There, verse 7, he builds an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence, verse 8, unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed, going on toward the south. He's in the promised land. What does he do? Just like when we went to the moon, what did we do? We planted a flag. When the Americans landed on the moon, they planted a flag. And we put a plaque at the base of that flag saying, we come in peace. We left a marker. So Abram, going into the promised land, leaves a marker. Now listen carefully. Over and over again, Abram, or Abraham, wherever he goes, he will do these two things. He will build an altar which shows he's a worshiper. And he will pitch his tent, which shows that he's a pilgrim. He never builds a house. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, I'll read it to you, but do take note of this if you're jotting notes down to refer to later. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abram, when he was called to go out into a place which he should receive afterwards for an inheritance, obeyed, he went out not knowing where he was going. Can you relate to that? Hebrews 11:8. Abram went, not knowing where he was going. Okay, Lord, here we go. And off he goes. And it says this, By faith he sojourned as a stranger in the country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
4, verse 10, He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abram, he lives in tents. Why? He already did the big house and hot tub and Lexus thing. He already had the Rolex and all the rest. Did that. Fifty years he did that. You know what he found out? He figured out when he was 50, this is not where it's at. What does he say? I'm looking for a city that has foundations. Not like Ur of the Chaldees. What I'm really craving for is heaven. I'm a stranger here. I'm a pilgrim here. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to live in a tent. That's the way we're to live. You say we should sell our houses and live in tents? Not necessarily. But what I am saying is, is that Abram, the father of faith, also called the friend of God, shows us the real way to live. Wherever you go, worship. It'll alter your life. You build the altar of worship, it will alter who you are, how you feel, the way you think. It'll alter you. And wherever you go, have a tent mentality. Oh, you might live in a great big house, fine, but don't take it seriously. You see, you're looking for a city that has foundations. You may think, I may think, what I'm really looking for is a house in the country, or a house on the lake, or a ski boat, or a new addition, or business growth, or a dream house, or a dream car, or a dream boat. Some guy, some girl, whatever it might be. Uh Uh-uh. What you're really craving, what I'm really craving is a thing called heaven. A city that has foundations. No other city has foundations. It's shaky. It's wobbly. It's a mirage. If you think, I'm going to be happy just as soon as we add on the extra room, you're kidding yourself. You're deluded. I'm going to be happy just as soon as He gives me the raise. You're kidding yourself. I'm going to be happy just as soon as the divorce goes through and I get to run off with her or him or whoever it may be. Hey, you're deceived. I'm deceived. Because what we're really craving is a thing called heaven. Abram says, I'm 50. I've got it figured out. What I'm really looking for is a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Therefore, I'm not going to take this world all that seriously. I'm going to live in a tent. And whether you live in a big house, that's great, but don't take it seriously. Or a small house, that can be very freeing, actually. Or no house, you're in good company. The fact of the matter is, you live for heaven. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, if you live for the things of earth, you'll never get it. If you live for the kingdom of heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. And that's the way it is. When you're living for heaven, you take a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously. And you can enjoy life, truly enjoy it. But if you're living for this life, you're going to be disappointed and disillusioned in it. So what does Abram do? He's a model for me and you. Wherever he goes, he builds an altar. He pitches a tent. He's a worshiper and he's a stranger or a pilgrim who's looking for a city that has foundations. One more thing in this passage that intrigues me. It says he pitched his tent having Bethel on the west. The name Bethel means house of God. And Hai, also known as Ai in the book of Joshua, Hai or Ai on the east. The word Bethel means house of God. Guess what 
Hei means. It means the heap. It means the dump, literally. The heap or the dump. So he has the house of God ahead of him. He has the dump on the other side of him. And that's basically where you and I live. We're going to the house of God. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. We know where we're going. And we've left the dump of this world. We know what the world's about, don't we? And we're kind of in this middle ground right now. we got heaven before us. we got the dump behind us. And like Abram, we're just kind of camped out in the middle, waiting for the culmination that is heaven, 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 heaven. That's where he's camped. That's what he's doing. Interesting. Now, he goes south, but then, oh, quickly, watch this. Ah, sad to say, he's walking now, but he's going to falter once again. Oh, boy. There was a famine in the land. Abram went down into Egypt. Whenever you read about Egypt, now you'll see that phrase. You go down to Egypt. You always go up to Jerusalem. You always go down to Egypt in the Scriptures. Because Egypt is a type of or a symbol of what? The world. What's Abram doing? He was doing so good right now for a while, but now he falls again because there's a famine. Got to do something. There's no food here. God said, go to the land that I will show thee of. Abram went there, but he didn't stay there. Now he says, I've got to do something. Listen, it's always dangerous when you're in that space when you think you've got to do something. Because you're going to end up, in many cases, we're going to end up much of the time like chickens with our heads cut off, running around. But all it means is we've been separated from the head, Jesus Christ. We're, and here he's running. He's going down to Egypt to try and get food, you see. It came to pass, when he was come near, verse 11, to enter into Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, now, I know that thou art a fair woman, or a snap eye, a babe, you're, you're, you're really, I mean, she was still young. She was only at this time 65 years of age. And he says, man, you are a real beaut. You're a babe. Oh, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. They'll kill me to get you. Oh, you're such a beauty, Sarah A.I., also known later as Sarah. So he says, verse 13, Say, I pray that, that thou art my, my sister, that it may be well for me uh, for thy sake, and my soul shall live. Because Just, just tell them that you're my sister. And that way I won't die. Good luck as they carry you off to the harem, but at least I won't die. Here's the man of faith. He's faltering in the area of faith because you always struggle, stumble in the area that you're normally the strongest in. Peter was bold taking out his sword, ready to take on a whole army to defend Jesus in Gethsemane. But then he falters in that same area when a little girl at the fire says, aren't you one of his? Blankety, blank, blank. He says, I don't know him. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. How do we know? He tells us. He was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And yet, what did he do? (laughs) Moses, what happened with him? He fell when? You rebels, he said, must we fetch water for you as he smashes his rod against the rock? A total lack of meekness. Noah was a righteous man. What happened to him? He got drunk and naked. We saw that story previously, didn't we? The area that you're strongest in is the area that you'll be most vulnerable to fall because you'll depend usually, rely usually on your own strength. Where you think, hey, that's not going to be a problem. I'm never going to do that. Watch out. 
I'll never fall there. Watch out. Because that's the area where you're probably going to experience failure. Because you'll be depending upon your own ability. Where you know you're weak, you rely on God, you see. So what happens here is this guy, Abram, he's a man of faith, but he goes, oh, just, just say that you're my sister, which was partially true. You follow the genealogies through, and you see that Abram and Sarai, or Sarah, were actually half-brother, half-sister. But a half a truth is a total lie. You see, understand this. Please take note of this. When the Bible says, do not bear false witness... What is false witness? It defines it one place, Matthew 26, the trial of Jesus. They got false witnesses who said, He said, Jesus, He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Well, He did say that. Then why are they called false witnesses? Because although He said those words, they were saying the right information with the wrong implication. They were saying, he's going to tear down the temple. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Listen, false witness as defined in the Bible isn't just a great big whopper. It's when you're tricky and you're clever. And you're telling a half truth or three quarters of a truth. Or you're saying an exact quote. It's the right information, but the wrong implication. It's a real tricky deal. Say that you're my sister, which is technically true, but not really. She's really his wife, you see. And so be careful of the tendency. If any of you are clever with words, watch out. If you're tricky, repent. Because a false witness is one who is able to say things that are technically true or even exactingly quoted, but wrong implication. False witness as identified in Matthew chapter 26 at the trial of Jesus. Thou shalt not bear false witness. God thunders on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and false witnesses are seen at the trial of Jesus with wrong implication. Dangerous, dangerous thing. So you're my sister. Technically sort of true, I guess. And, and it, it all do okay. Well, it came to pass. When Abram was come to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. And when the Bible says a gal is very fair, that means she is very fair. The Bible doesn't use that phrase liberally. Very sparingly are those words used. Well, the princes of Pharaoh saw her, verse 15, and commended her to Pharaoh. Hey, there's a new gal in town, Pharaoh. <laughs> Whoa, she is really something. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he, Pharaoh, verse 16, entreated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep. Oxen, he asses, men servants, maid servants, she asses, and camels. Pharaoh said, so that's your sister, eh? Take all this stuff. Take these servants, men servants, and maid servants, and camels, and oxes, and asses, which in those days, that was the rich stuff. Those were the Rolexes, you know. That was the infinities. It was the fancy stuff, you see. Take this stuff, and, and, and I'll take your sister. So... Abram gets all this stuff, but the Lord, verse 17, plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Sarah, Abram's wife. Pharaoh that night thinks, oh, I'm in the mood for love, and suddenly he finds himself staggering. No doubt he intended to be with her, but suddenly he's just 
perhaps barfing, he's staggering, he, he's just not in the mood for anything, but just laying in his bed, he's sick. Not only is he sick, but all of the guys around him are sick too. They're plagued. They're unable to follow through. Pharaoh cannot do what he intended to do. And somehow he understands the reason. And Pharaoh called Abram, verse 18, and said, What is this that thou hast done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was thy wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her to me to wife. I was almost going to take her in my embrace. What did you do this for? He says to Abram. Now therefore, take thy wife and go thy way. And Pharaoh commended his men concerning him, or commanded, pardon me, his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife. Notice this last phrase, and all that he had. Listen carefully. Don't miss this. Sarah, the wife of Abram, is the one woman whom the Bible holds up as a picture of what a Christian wife should be. Abram was blowing it here. He was leading his wife in a way that was not the best, down into Egypt. And then he chickened out and left his wife in a vulnerable spot where she was taken into Pharaoh's Pharaoh's harem. But listen to what the Bible has to say in 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you don't know this passage, jot it down, please read it. Wives, be in submission to your own husbands, that they may behold your chaste lifestyle. He says, as he talks about the inner character of a beautiful woman who is submitted to her husband, who is serving and seeking her God. Then he says this, For in after this manner, verse 5, women, holy women of old time, trusted in God and adorned themselves by being in submission to their own husbands. What's the really sharp-dressed woman wearing in God's economy? She's wearing the cloak, the covering of submission to her husband. Peter says, this is the key. Wives, you submit to your husband. It's what is precious in the sight of God. Even as Sarah, verse 6, Sarah, the gal we're talking about, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters are you, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement, simply said, Sarah called her husband Abram Lord. She reverenced him. She was in submission to him. But but he's leading her astray. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. What the Lord here is saying in this story and in the text of 1 Peter chapter 3, Sarah is the model of the way it's supposed to be. You're to be in submission to your husband because you are ultimately trusting in the Lord to do what? Look what the Lord did in this story. Sarah honored her husband, calling him Master or Lord. Honored him in being submitted even when he was not walking in wisdom And God, number one, protected her. You submit to your husband. And even if he's going in a less than the best way, listen, wifey, listen, sister, listen, lady, he will protect you like he protected Sarah that day. He will protect you. 
Now, I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm not talking about not giving your input. I'm not talking about a lack of animated interaction and discussion. But when the time comes where a decision must be made, and if you and your hubby don't agree, when the decision must be made, even if you think it's not the best way, wife, you are to be in submission to him. Because you see, that is a sacrifice that you're giving to the Lord. Sacrifice isn't sacrifice unless it's sacrifice. It means nothing to be in submission if you agree with hubby. Where submission kicks in is when you don't really agree with him. When sacrifice is really given is when it costs you something. When you say, I don't know if this is the best way or if this is the highest route, but okay, I'm going to submit to you because, Lord, you tell me that that's what is supposed to happen in marriage, you see. God protected her and God, number two, protected her and God, number two, prospered the family. Because she was a submitted wife, God prospered the family. How so? Look what happened here. Look in our story. They got oxes and sheep and donkeys and servants and camels. They became wealthy again. Because Pharaoh said, hey, take this stuff. And when Pharaoh said, what did you do? Get out of here. It says that they took all that they had, verse 20. All the stuff that was given. You want to enrich your family? Wife, sister, dear lady. If you want to enrich your family, here's what you do. Be in subjection, in submission to your husband. God will bless your family richly in ways that will blow your mind. God protected her because she was submitted. And God prospered the family because of her submission, you see. And God will do the same for you. Well, you say. That sounds awfully chauvinistic to me. Well, you say. Abram comes out smelling like a rose. I mean, can you believe this guy? I mean, he puts his wife in a place of vulnerability, of danger, so he can save his own skin and make it easier for himself. And then he walks away with all kinds of riches. You say, oh man, that sounds chauvinistic to me. Wait a minute, that's not the end of the story. Abram doesn't get off scot-free, folks. You see, one of the things listed here in our story that he got was maid servants. One of the servants, one of the maid servants, was a maid servant by the name of Hagar that would later on permanently break Abram's heart. Hagar was the one that later on he would have relations with, he would have intimacy with on the advice of his wife, Sarah. Sarah was barren. Take Hagar, this, this servant girl, and have relations with her, and we'll count that as our kid. And you know the story. Hagar conceived an Ishmael, Abram's firstborn. Ishmael was born. But the day came when, as Ishmael was growing up, Sarah said, she has got to go, and so does Ishmael. And God said, listen to her. Listen to her. Send them away. And Abram cries out, Oh, God, he says, that Ishmael might live before thee. Let Ishmael be the promised son. Let him be with me. His heart is broken. 
his oldest boy is sent away into the desert. And Abram's heart is broken, and he will permanently bear that burden all the days of his life. So wives, take hope. If hubby is not going the right way, and you say, I'm going to be submitted to him, God's going to protect you, prosper the family, and if hubby's doing something wrong that he ought not to be, guess what? He is going to be pained. Because, you see, be sure... (laughs) Be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. It's so true. That those sins, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So you got to see, gals, well, man, the guy gets off scot-free. Not true. If I blow it in the leading of my family, there are going to be heartbreaks and heartaches for me without question. But if Tammy chooses to be in subjection to me when I'm not going perhaps the way I ought to be, Listen, at that point, God's going to protect her and prosper our family in other ways, and I am still going to have to go through the pain and repercussions of my own sin. God's going to deal with me. If you, as a wife, are not into submission or subjection, if you say, I'm just not into that, listen, don't even think about being involved in some other ministry. Don't even think about starting a woman's Bible study, prayer meeting. Don't even think about being an evangelist. Don't even, don't even go there. It all begins at home. If it doesn't work at home, gals, it doesn't work. If it doesn't work at home, brothers, it doesn't work. God is so serious about this, He says, look, Concerning leaders in ministry, if they can't raise their own kids in a godly way, how can they then raise God's children in discipling, in serving, in teaching, in ministry? And God says through the Apostle Paul that an elder, a leader, a brother, must be one who is raising up his own family. If he's not doing that, he's disqualified from ministry. And if a woman is not submitted to her husband, even if she may not agree with him, if she's not submitted to him, then she's missing it. She has no business, in my opinion, pursuing any other ministry. If it doesn't work at home, it just doesn't work. Period. How serious is God about this? Ask Moses. God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt to the Promised Land. But on the way, chapter 4 of Exodus... Right after he calls him, God comes and pins Moses to the ground. And God is going to kill Moses. And Moses is there by an inn, a hotel if you would, pinned to the ground. And he's about to die, evidently going into some kind of convulsion. And and Zipporah, his wife, sees what's happening. And what does she do? She knows immediately what's going on. She grabs a knife. She takes their oldest son, Gershom, and circumcises him. And she takes that which has been circumcised and she throws it down at Moses and she says, you're a bloody husband to me. And suddenly, Moses is free. God withdraws, if you would. You say, what's going on there? 
God called Moses to a very significant ministry, but wait. Moses didn't even take the time to do what he was supposed to do with his own son, with his own family. Gershom, his son, should have been circumcised years ago. But Moses neglected his own son. And if you neglect your own son, God says that's deadly serious. If you can't tend your own son, if you can't take care of your own family, your ministry is dead, Moses. You're going to die right here. Zipporah understood that. She grabs the knife and she does what Moses should have done. By the way, wife, in that there's a story. If your husband doesn't choose to bring the Lord into the house, if he won't have family devotions or prayer time or Bible talk or whatever it might be, if he just refuses to do it, you have the right to grab the knife, to grab the sword. It shouldn't have to be that way, but sometimes out of necessity it is. And the wife, with with great discretion and real care and not condemnation, not in-your-face kind of mentality, but lovingly, quietly, gracefully introduces them the things of the knife to cut away the flesh like Zipporah did. But notice this, husband. She, Zipporah, was embittered. You're a bloody husband. She stalks off because it should have been his job, but he didn't do it, so she had to. Sometimes women in our congregation have to do what the husband should do, and it can create brothers, husbands. It can create bitterness in the hearts of the women. Why isn't my husband doing what he's supposed to? God is serious about this. Ask Moses. Ask Paul and Timothy. Ask Abram. It's got to be right at home with the kids in the marriage. If you're calling your husband, oh man, that old geezer, or well, oh, you know that 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 idiot, I'm not going to submit to him. I, well, he's always going the wrong way, and he doesn't get it, and I've got a headache, and I'm not going to submit to him. No way. If you've got a headache and you're not submitted to your husband and I think you understand the implication, then you have no business in ministry. Amen. Take some aspirin. Do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Deal with the issues. Love your man. Submit to him. It's so important. And I guess my concern is simply this tonight, that I see sometimes men who are saying, I'm going to serve God when their son isn't circumcised. That's not right. And I see women who say, well, my husband, he doesn't have a clue and I don't have time for him, but I'm going to go in this women's ministry. That ought not to be. It's got to be real at home. That's the most important place of ministry is the home. The home, the home, the home. Wives, be like Sarah. Even if he's going in a direction that you don't understand or agree with, submit to the Lord in submitting to him. You're honoring the Lord as you say to your husband, I'm going to honor you and submit to you today. If he's wrong, God will protect you. God will prosper the family. And he'll pay the repercussions, believe you me. Well, important lessons. Let's pray, shall we? Father, these things that are in your word are so very practical so hugely important. 
I pray that we might see ourselves, Father, as pilgrims, strangers, headed for heaven. We might seek first the kingdom. And Father, I thank You because in the times when I have faltered and failed, You have done with me even as You did with Abraham and do with us all. You just pick us up and get us going again. For that we give You thanks. But Lord, we know that there are repercussions that follow our failures. Abraham with that Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. Father, I pray that we might be wise, that we might learn from the experiences of Abram and Sarah, that we might then avoid the unnecessary heartaches and heartbreaks, and that we might see the practicality of your way, the rightness of your word. Bless the Applegate family. Bless these who have come and sat in this study tonight. May they go their way, Lord, with applications in their hearts from Your Spirit. And may we be doers of the Word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name.